Can you uh, remind us where we were with the public testimony? Uh, we have one more in person and three virtual. Um, our next testimony is from Lightning. Is Lightning back? He might know. Be back. Oh, there we are. All right. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Lightning. I represent Lightning Super Creativity Humanity Lab X. Freedom of speech, the First Amendment, what a beautiful thing it is. It's so beautiful. Now moving on to my subject is I am the most outspoken person against Multnomah County River Patrol in the history of Multnomah County. As the previous owner of Columbia River Marina up on Northeast Marine Drive, I was run off my property any means necessary. Displaced, my business damaged, my developments damaged, any means necessary. Set me up, try to assassinate me. You're pathetic jokes, Multnomah County River Patrol your embarrassments. Now, what I'm proposing is that we transfer Multnomah County River Patrol to the city of Portland and transfer Portland Street response over to Multnomah County. That's what should happen. If you look at the numbers on the budgets, it's a very simple thing to do. You would remove a tremendous liability from Multnomah County also in the process. Also, I'm asking Mayor Wheeler, which I've talked to on this transfer, to also transfer the inn at the convention center to Multnomah County. That can also be used either for recovery housing, uh, possibly even a sobering center. Uh, again, I'd like to see the Crown Plaza purchased. Also has a vacant lot that could possibly be used as a sobering center to where you integrate everything all at once. And again, I understand my good friend, Commissioner Edwards, is handling that sobering center, and I'll be watching that very close. And also, I do approve of the committee that you have set up on that, especially Judge Nan Waller, which I have a tremendous amount of respect for. Thank, Thank you. you, Judge. Thank you. Next, we have um, virtual public testimony. Just one second. Okay. Um, let me. Hitlati Torres, um, you are next. You're unmuted on my end. You just have to unmute on your end, and you can maybe begin speaking. You have two minutes. Hello, my name is Chloe Torres. Hello, uh, we can hear you. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today. Hello, Chair Vega Pearson. Thank you for providing the opportunity to testify. I'm the Air Quality and Climate Program Coordinator at Britain. I'm here today to support the movement towards creating cleaner air standards and building decarbonization in Multnomah County. 
Verde's mission is to build environmental wealth through organizing, advocacy, and social enterprise. We believe that communities experience the harshest impacts of climate change are should be front center in policy. We know that air pollution is an environmental justice issue here. In Portland, data shows that unhealthy air is more likely to occur in neighborhoods with high populations of low-income, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, who are more likely to experience two to three times higher levels of particulate matter, ozone, and other dangerous air pollutants. Homes and buildings are a large source of indoor and outdoor air pollution, with more than 80% of building pollution coming from fossil fuel, HVAC, and water heating. Building equipment in Multnomah County alone contributes three-fourths as much nitrogen oxides as from gas power plants across the entire state. Costs from health issues caused and exacerbated by inhaling polluted air are staggering. According to analysis using the EPA risk assessment tool, impacts faced by Oregonians cost almost $88 million annually. Taking action to reduce emissions from buildings is also an action to for climate, as homes and buildings are the second largest source of climate pollution in Oregon. Just last week, our governor signed an MOU with eight other states to accelerate the transition to pollution-free HVAC water feeding equipment homes. So it's only sensible that the county with the most polluted air in the state lead the way in this transition. So please continue to pass a resolution to affirm the county's intention to address this issue and to direct staff to develop healthy air standards in partnership with organized labor and affordable housing. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Um, next, we have uh, Dylan Plummer. Dylan, you're unmuted on my end. Um, you will have to unmute on your end, and you may begin. Um, awesome. So, Chair Vigan Peterson, members of the commission, thank you for providing this opportunity for testimony. My name is Dylan Plummer, and I'm a senior organizing strategist with the Sierra Club working across Oregon and Washington. On behalf of the Sierra Club's members and supporters in Multnomah County and our over 70,000 members and supporters across the state of Oregon, I'm testifying to support the commission to pursue policies to equitably electrify new and existing homes and buildings and eliminate the use of polluting methane gas in Multnomah County. Specifically, the Sierra Club supports Multnomah County to move quickly to pass a resolution to direct staff to develop clean air standards to address the significant pollution associated with the combustion of fossil fuels in homes and buildings. Burning fossil fuels such as gas and propane to heat homes and businesses generates a range of dangerous air pollutants that endanger health, including nitrogen oxides, fine particulate matter, benzene, formaldehyde, and carbon monoxide. These air pollutants, also found in car exhaust, dirty the air uh, Multnomah County residents breathe both indoors and out, and increase the risk of health harms like asthma, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and premature death. While regulators limit lung-damaging pollution from other major sectors like heavy industry and transportation, uh, air regulators have yet to address health impacts from fossil fuel heating equipment in buildings in Oregon um, and in Multnomah County. This policy shortcoming leads to tangible harms that disproportionately fall on low-income communities and communities of color. Gas-fueled building equipment contributes significantly to Multnomah County's air pollution, generating three-fourths as much NOx pollution as comes from gas power plants across the entire state. Gas heating equipment is the second largest source of NOx pollution in the county behind cars and trucks. Um, so this is an extremely important issue to address, not just for um, protecting air uh, quality, but also for reducing emissions. 
And it's no coincidence that the gas industry has avoided regulation for so long. As this body witnessed firsthand um, with the misleading testimony of mercenary toxicologist Julie Goodman in the fall of 2022, the industry, including utilities like Northwest Natural, are taking a page out of Big Tobacco's playbook. Uh, so I hope you'll, you'll move forward with a resolution. Thank you. Thank you. Next, we have Sarat Jonas. Um, I'm going to go ahead and unmute you, and you may begin once you're unmuted on your end. Peterson and Magnoma County Commissioners. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. I am Sarat Yunus from the Community Energy Project, testifying in support of concrete policies to decarbonize our buildings and regulate the use of pollutant gas appliances. Community Energy Project is a community-based organization that served 2,000 households last year that were low-income BIPOC seniors, people with disabilities, and immigrant households. We work directly with families in need of critical home health and safety repairs and energy efficient upgrades who are struggling with extreme temperatures, poor air quality, and energy inefficiency. To that end, we oversee construction, repairs, and weatherization upgrades to help people live more comfortably and use less energy. Recent weather events from ice storms this winter to the lethal heat dome in 2021 have shown how healthy, efficient homes can be a matter of life or death. Efficient homes, buildings, and appliances result in lower pollution, better indoor air quality, lower energy bills, and reduced stress. Clients have shared stories with us about the toll inefficient homes and high energy bills have on their mental and physical well-being, especially when some tenants have small children or existing health problems. Many studies have linked respiratory illnesses with the use of gas appliances. Gas stoves, for example, can increase the risk of asthma in children by 42%. Indoor and outdoor air pollution generated by the combustion of fossil fuels disproportionately impact historically marginalized communities, intensifying existing health disparities for our most vulnerable communities. Passing policies that promote decarbonization and restrict the use of gas appliances will not only protect public health and safety, but also pave the way for a more sustainable and equitable future. We stress the critical importance of transitioning away from fossil fuels, as this shift is fundamental to mitigating the long-term effects of climate change. Thank you. That is all the public testimony we have today. Thank you. Let's um, proceed to R1. R1, uh, is this, okay. R1, informational briefing on the ADVSD Medicaid funding changes from the state of Oregon. So moved. Oh, thank you, oh. it's a non-voting item. It's a non-voting item. item. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll get um, a briefing on this and then um, during their presentation, we'll, we wanted to, well, I'll just give my talking points and then they'll, they'll talk. So our Aging Veterans and Disability Services, or ADVSD, as it is very commonly referred to here at the county, lies within our Department of County Human Resources and provides navigation and support to some of our most vulnerable community members who deserve our attention, services, and resources. I'm so grateful for the important work of these teams. They provide human-centered care coordination, assist with public benefits enrollment, find guardianship services and locate adult care homes, and also investigate possible abuse. Much of our funding for ADVSD comes as flow through from the state and federal partners, including Medicaid. We've come to understand some notable budget impacts for this fiscal year, as well as future planning for FY25, 
that we would like to elevate to you today for um, understanding, particularly to understand the team strategies to address financial shortfalls while maintaining these critical services for our community. Um, I'm now pleased to welcome our D ADVSD um, Division Director, Irma Jimenez, and Quality and Business Manager, Jacob Messman, um, to the DS to explain and provide more information. Good morning. Good morning, thank you, Chair. Um, my name is Irma Jimenez. I am the D D Director for Aging, Disability, and Veteran Services. I use she, her pronouns. Um, Hi, good morning, uh, Chair Vega Peterson and Commissioners. My name is Jacob Mestman. I use he and him pronouns, and I work as the budget manager for the division. And thank you for that um, introduction. Mohammed's going to start us off, and I'll let Mohammed introduce himself. Oh, that's great, uh, wonderful, Chair. I think you've done uh, about 99% of uh, what I thought my job was going to be, so it's perfect. Uh, uh, my name is Mohammed Bader. I'm the DCHS uh, uh, Department Director. I'm really uh, Honored to be here with uh, my colleagues. Uh, the reason uh, I'm here is uh, Rachel was working with the team and she's in France this morning, so I get to be a substitute uh, for her. But uh, the other uh, big reason is I did uh, started my career really with Aging and Disability Services in 97, and a lot of the work that Aging and Disability Services does is just very close to my heart. Uh, started as a supervisor, as I mentioned, in 97, and I have witnessed all the incredible work the case managers do from establishing eligibility to, I was also a manager that oversaw protective services, uh, as well as making sure that people receive benefits. Uh, you'll find out from the team that uh, in Multnomah County, out of the 800,000 uh, individuals that are in the county, about probably 200,000 individuals can or may be eligible for any types of services we provide in Multnomah County. Uh, that's about like one, maybe in four, one in five people that we help through Irma and her team. Uh, they do an incredible job of uh, looking at one important tenant that we do for older adults and people with disabilities, which is really to live independently, have choice and dignity in where they would like to live. Uh, the whole program is based on the premise that we really want people to choose the type of services they receive. And so you'll find out that we as a department uh, and as a division uh, go from uh, a less restrictive alternative where we want people to have a less intrusion into their lives to the kind of most intrusive, which would be like a guardianship type of a program. Uh, we have some uh, both like challenges to also present to you, but also we're very excited because we have been uh, advocating for our budget and we wanted to also thank Commissioner uh, Viga Peterson for talking with legislators for us. So you'll hear a little bit more on that uh, from Irma and from Jacob. We also have Robert Stahl with us here who is our budget uh, director just in case if there's any kind of complex uh, budget uh, type of issues. But uh, as I mentioned, I'll be here for any questions. I've, I've worked for about 28 years, about 26 of them um, pretty much understanding aging and disability services. And so with that, I'll turn it to Irma. She's gonna um, also start us off. Thank you, Mohammed. Um, and just to mention, I've been with Aging, Disability, and Veteran Services for 28 years as well, and I kind of did a variety of 
of um, positions as uh, through my career um, with aging services. Um, but good morning again. Uh, I don't know if I have to state my name again. I'm Irma Jimenez, um, the Director of Aging, Disability, and Veteran Services. We're here to talk to you about a, a Medicaid reduction in our budget. Uh, the budget reduction was a bit of a surprise, a big surprise to us here in um, ADVSD. We haven't had such a big reduction in Medicaid or a reduction in Medicaid funding in, in the last several years. Um, it is a difficult time for ADVSD. Um, and we have done our best to make decisions that have had the least impacts on consumers and staff um, in our efforts. Um, and in our efforts, we, we were able to get ADBSD's um, budget balance for this fiscal year, and Jacob will go more into that um, a little bit later. Um, but I would like to thank Jacob for all the work that he's been doing on the budget, you know, my leadership team, um, and also the department leadership, Mohammed and Rachel Pearl, for their support through this process. Um, Next slide, please. Just do a quick overview of our um, what we will be talking to you about today. We'll provide you with an overview, a brief overview of ADBSD programs and funding um, amounts by program. Um, we'll provide some information about our long-term services and support um, consumers. Um, we'll then provide you an overview of our Medicaid-specific funding, um, and then speak to you about impacts of this reduction and, and then give a legislative and uh, overview and next steps. Next slide. Next slide, please. All right. Um, ADBSD contracts with the state of Oregon, um, Department of Human uh, Department of Human Services to administer several programs, as Mohammed mentioned. We are an agency on aging for Multnomah County, which is an agency designated by the state to address the needs and concerns of older adults um, on local levels. Uh, we serve uh, adults age 60 and over, um, individuals who are 18 and older with a physical disability and veterans. And our contract with the state is a two-year contract, and for this biennium, it began July 1st of 2023. Um, so there's four types of funding sources in the ADVSD budget, as you see along the top here. The first one is Medicaid, which is federal funding passed to us through state contract. Uh, we've got county general funds, um, our Older Americans Act funding, which is also funding that, that's passed to us through a state contract. Um, and then there's a small portion of American Rescue Plan um, and other grants that I will um, um, explain as I go through this uh, This. Um, chart here. So um, ADVSD's fiscal year 24 budget is $115.7 million, which includes 555 FTE. We're the largest division in the department. Our budget is allotted in six areas, if you'll see on the left column here. Um, and I'm going to provide you with a, a brief description of each program um, and then their funding sources. So the ADVSD um, administration, it provides uh, division-wide support that helps with planning, committee engagement, analysis, and evaluation. This is the position where, um, this is where my position sits and Jacob's position sits. And we've got some quality data folks as well. Um, and this is, um, this has both Medicaid and County General Fund um, that supports this group. Um, our, adult, our adult care home program is a program that licenses adult care homes in Multnomah County for both Medicaid and private pay residents to ensure compliance um, with rules and regulations. Um, there are single family units in residential neighborhoods um, and they care for up to five people in a home-like environment. And currently there's about 600 adult foster homes in Multnomah County. 
and then the funding source for this program um, is Medicaid County General Fund. A small portion of funding is, is uh, from collecting fees and fines. Um, our Adult Protective Services Program um, investigates abuse, neglect, and financial exploitation for individuals um, in both the, um, the community and long-term care facilities. They also staff uh, risk case managers that provide longer-term follow-up um, for people facing threats to their health and safety. And then the multidisciplinary team is nestled under that program. Um, the team is staffed with a community nurse and a contracted mental health specialist uh, who provide home visits to assist individuals connect with um, mental health and medical services. There's also some um, adult protective services staff on that team. Um, and they're, they're supported by Medicaid, um, county general funds, um, and then there's a small amount of other. This is, this is funding from mental, that we receive from mental health for our uh, multidisciplinary team. Um, in community services, community services is um, a program that receives every type of funding source with the majority of being grants. Uh, most of their services are contracted out to community-based organizations. Um, the Medicaid portion uh, goes to support the Aging Disability Resource uh, Center. It's a call center and operates 24-7. Um, the Older Americans Act and the majority of the County General Fund um, is distributed to our contractors that provide the Older Americans Act services. For example, the senior centers, congregate meals, um, Meals on Wheels, Family Caregiver Program. Um, they have a small portion of American Rescue Plan funding that will be um, um, expiring soon, and then they have other grants um, that consist of funding from, for example, from State and Federal Veterans Administration that supports our veterans program that helps connect veterans and their families to benefits. Um, the grants support uh, services that are not in our state contract, like the Senior Health Information Benefits Assistance Program, um, the transportation services, and organ money, organ money management. So they have a mixture of funds um, um, in, their, in their program. Long-term services and supports and the transition and diversion. Um, this is the biggest team in ADVSD. Uh, the long-term services and support program provides two Medicaid case management programs. There's a service case management and there's an eligibility case management. Um, and the service case management um, uh, participants meet state guidelines for nursing level of care. Um, this program prioritizes home and community-based services, which is less, res less restrictive. Excuse me, my mouth is getting than in living in a nursing home. And, you know, Noma County has people living in community-based settings, um, um, more, more people living in community-based settings than the national average. Uh, the eligibility participants are enrolled in programs meeting basic health, financial, and nutritional needs, um, and they do not qualify for a nursing facility level of care. Uh, programs include the Oregon Health Plan, um, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, um, and Medicaid um, health insurance. And as part of the long-term services and support program is the transition and diversion program. Um, and Oregon is a national leader in offering alternatives to nursing facilities. The transition and diversion program serves all nursing facility eligible individuals in Multnomah County to relocate um, to community settings if they choose to leave the nursing, for home, nursing home. Um, the team also works with individuals discharging from the hospital um, who don't want to be placed in nursing facilities. 
uh, to return to home or to find a community uh, living option. Um, the funding for long-term services and supports is as Medicaid. Um, the majority is Medicaid. We've got co county general fund and the, um, the one million um, other funds comes from hospital contracts for staffing um, that work exclusively for, for hospital um, patients. And then the public guardian and conservatorship program is a program that um, staffs public guardians who are court appointed representatives for individuals who have uh, mental incompatibility and need daily intensive assistance and support. Um, they also need specialized housing. Public guardians are available 24-7 to make um, the necessary decisions for those consumers. And this is the only group that is 100% um, county general fund. But one thing to note on here is that the largest, Medicaid is the largest source in ADB, uh, funding source in ADBSD, bringing in $80.7 million um, of our overall $115 million budget. And the services the county um, receives um, for the amount of county general fund is, is really incredible. Next slide, please. Uh, is that the next slide? Yeah, I believe we have an updated presentation, but we can probably, I don't know if we want to just roll, roll through. Yeah, all right. Um, yeah, thank you, Irma. Mm -hmm. uh, good morning, Chair Big Peterson, uh, commissioners. Um, uh, like I mentioned, my name is Jacob Mestman. I use he and him pronouns, and I work as a budget manager for the division. And uh, this is a distribution of funds uh, across our division. And so even though our uh, presentation is um, about Medicaid, we wanted to give you an idea of the funding uh, for the full division. So um, this is... Uh, 100% of our funding, and it's split up into those same same categories that Irma mentioned on the slide, previous slide. So there is uh, Medicaid, which is about $80.7 million, and you can see that's about 70% of our budget. And so that's a fairly large uh, portion of our budget. Um, we've also uh, received Older Americans Act funding, and so uh, that is the, um, let's see here. Uh, looks like, we're, yeah, um, let's see. I wonder if you could just jump down a couple slides. Maybe we can kind of kind of finish the, it's one, maybe two more. I think the, this, so I think we just kind of updated the presentation with a newer version. Uh, and one more slide down, we'll, we'll jump into this one. So, yeah. and then I don't know if we want to kind of go back to the service piece. So. Yeah, sure. Okay, uh, so um, actually one slide back, please. Yep, this one here, thank you. So uh, the Older Americans Act is about 4.2% of our budget that, that's passed through funding to support providers like, uh, or to uh, support clients that are served by providers. Like I mentioned, this is for health promotion, nutrition services, uh, case management. Um, the county general fund portion in blue is about 12% of our budget and at 13.8 million. We have a small amount of ARP funding. Over the past five years, uh, we've had about $5 million in ARP funding in four to five years since March of 2020. And that has been, we've been kind of slowly on a glide path down to uh, 
um, with those funds in a way that supports our providers so that it's not a, a large funding cliff. And then for our other funding, that's uh, predominantly grants that's passed through. It's veteran services, uh, federal services, state services, et cetera, et cetera. All right, next slide, please. So um, before I jump into our uh, Medicaid, um, the Medicaid uh, portion of this, uh, I just wanted to, um, to appreciate uh, and extend uh, gratitude to Irma and our leadership team. Um, you may have heard that we received significantly less funding um, this biennium than expected, which has uh, been very challenging for us, a lot of, of challenging decisions. Um, we're not unique in this situation. There are also three other area agency on aging uh, or AAAs across the state that are also funded with Medicaid that were impacted. Uh, however, due to Multnomah County's large population, we were impacted, um, we had a larger reduction than some of the other areas. Um, as you'll hear about shortly, there's been a lot of advocacy happening these, these last five to six months and many conversations in our leadership team meetings and there isn't a meeting that goes by where the budget is the center of the conversation where the workforce uh, isn't the focus and the people that we serve. And so um, we have a workforce, uh, like Irma mentioned, 555 employees who do so much amazing work every day to serve Multnomah County's diverse communities. Uh, I also just want to quickly thank uh, Mohammed and Rachel and Robert and, and Christian for their guidance and advocacy throughout this process. So, uh, so this slide uh, shows three types of Medicaid funding. And uh, so I'd like to kind of start here. Uh, there is, uh, our Medicaid uh, funding is on a biennial cycle. So it goes from July 1st of 2023 to June of 2025. And that offers some flexibility for us. So as you can see, the allocation that we have this biennium is $144.5 million. And we can uh, decide how much of that funding we use in year one and how much we use in year two. So I just would like to kind of start with uh, describing how this Medicaid funding works. Uh, the middle section, that 88.2 million, is called non-waivered funding or base funding. And this is funding that we um, are provided to administer Medicaid programs, like Irma mentioned um, in that first slide, across the division to meet our contractual obligations. It's not funding that we have to earn or that we pay in for. And so uh, that's the center uh, bar there. On the left, we have waivered funding. At 20, uh, $25.9 million of waivered funding is funding that were paid monthly based on the number of case management contacts that our case managers do. And so we're paid $290 per contact. And so that money is essentially earned. And when, uh, when we received our allocation, one of the things that uh, Irma and I did was when we met with budget folks just to ensure that we can draw down all of those funds. And so uh, we now are um, about, we've been kind of billing for the last six months uh, in this, in this uh, biennium so far, and it looks as though we will have no problem drawing those funds down. And so uh, that's the, the wavered funding or the earned funding on the left. And then the right is kind of the more complex funding. This is called local match funding. And this funding is money that we pay, uh, essentially we buy. Um, we pay 38 cents for every dollar that we receive. And so this is where um, 
about $3.8 million of our general fund in fiscal year 24 goes to purchasing this uh, called local match money. And we also are able to use some other funds that are brought in from the adult care home program. Uh, next slide, please. So this slide shows the distribution of Medicaid. And um, I just want to mention here that you'll notice that there is a difference uh, between the, the, the uh, kind of 100% bar graph that you saw a couple slides earlier that showed 80.7 million and this graph that shows the 75.4 million. So the 80.7 million actually includes a few, a few other types of Medicaid as well, not just the waivered, non-waivered, and local match. It also includes Medicaid transportation funding, housing support, and a new program called Oregon Project Independence Medicaid. And um, for the purposes of this presentation, we're actually just showing you the t three types of Medicaid that, uh, that I, I mentioned in the last slide because that's where the deficit for this biennium is. Um, the other types of Medicaid are separate lines in our contract, so we're not able to kind of, you know, uh, use them to supplement uh, in terms of the, the different Medicaid. Um, so, uh, so you can see for this slide, um, we pay about 75% towards our personnel. 1% of our Medicaid goes towards materials and supplies, about 21% internal services and 3% to contract services. Uh, next slide, please. And this is our total uh, Medicaid FTE by program offer. So uh, as Irma mentioned, you can see the long-term services and supports is the, uh, the largest uh, program that we have, that the largest amount of staff that we have. And that's uh, 308 staff in the um, FTE in the long-term services and supports is about 67% of the overall um, FTE. Medicaid FTE in the division. Next slide, please. So this uh, this bar. I'm sorry. Can I just ask a quick question? Mm -hmm. Is this this presentation is is different than we got last yeah. last yeah. week? It's, uh, yeah, I'm looking at slides on my computer and I don't see these slides. Marina, is there a different presentation that you have access to? I'm also I printed it out last week when we got it. So is yeah, apologies, it, apologies about that. We. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, we submitted a, a additional information. I think we got some feedback that it would be good to have sort of an overview of the, uh, all of the sort of Medicaid services and FTE, so we sent, sent an uh, updated one on, on Monday. Sorry about that confusion so, there. Marina, there was an um, email that you had sent out, I believe, on, uh, um, on uh, Tuesday, the 13th. Is that this one? No. I I'm wondering if... Yeah. It, it might have been the wrong attachment that went out. I apologize. So there's... Um, and I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt the presentation. Oh, no. It's just like when I get the presentation on the Friday before, I print it out, look through it, and yeah. so, yeah. and sort of think, think through my questions. Yeah, we were like adjusting. I think we're whispering with each other that we'll just go with what's there, but we know that we've uh, submitted like an updated uh, one, so if you'd like to... Yeah, Pull that, or we can email yeah. it to you. Yeah. Uh, to forward it us. Mm -hmm. Trying to be flexible there. We just figured. We'll yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll just take a minute, and Marina, if you can email that to the board. Okay. It's been sent. Okay. Thank you. And then, do you want to like then put the that? 
presentation. I, I believe the presentation that's on is the correct one. Okay, yeah. good, great, thank you. I haven't received it yet. Did you? Is it floating somewhere? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Still, I don't have it yet. Okay. All right. Thanks for sending it. All right. Thank you. So it looks like we are on the tenth slide. Okay, thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> All right, go for it. Thank you, Chair Vega-Peterson. Uh, just to note about the slides, there were no changes to any of the slides. We just added um, some slides on the services piece and then some additional kind of breakdown of the Medicaid budget. Um, so, uh, so for this slide, this shows the, uh, similar to the last slide, it shows um, instead of the FTE, it shows the total uh, funding, Medicaid funding breakdown by program offer. And it, you'll see uh, or notice that it's actually very similar in shape because the Medicaid is primarily used uh, for staffing. All right, next slide, please. So in this slide, I'd uh, like to show you a graph and talk about a timeline of events to paint a picture of how we planned for this biennium, as well as our advocacy work over the past five to six months. So as we planned for our allocation this biennium, we looked back uh, for biennia and looked at the biannual increases, which showed an average of 10.6% increase per year in Medicaid funding. Uh, based on that look back, uh, we projected uh, or estimated that we'd receive approximately $153.6 million for this biennium. Uh, we also reviewed the governor's recommended budget for the 23-25, and while the GRB uh, provides high-level information, uh, it doesn't contain the information at the level that we need to know in terms of funding for our local area agency on aging. Uh, in terms of the allocation, this biennium, we received our Medicaid allocation in August of 23, which was much later than usual and a couple months into fiscal year 24, and that presented some challenges for us. Uh, in the previous biennium, we received our allocation uh, in April, and so, um, so that gave us a little bit more uh, planning time. Um, and so, uh, so we received this one in August, and as soon as we received the allocation, uh, we pretty quickly um, uh, met with Mohammed. We were really disheartened to, uh, to learn that we had received less than 2% of an increase. And so, um, so the first thing that we did is uh, Irma and I reached out to Mohammed. We met in his office and he contacted, pretty much immediately reached out to senior leadership at the state to find out if there had been an error. Uh, Irma reached out to aging and people with disabilities leadership to ask for a workload model, which is a document that has the budget detail on staffing and the funding amounts. And over the course of a few months, uh, we had a number of meetings with uh, ODHS leadership, both here and in Salem, to learn about the, the change in funding. Uh, Mohammed met with senior ODHS leadership 
involved our government relations folks and Robert uh, Stoll, who's here today um, as a finance director. Irma and I met with the budget analysts from the state who are responsible for building the workload model portion of the budget, as well as the APD director, uh, policy manager, and community services and supports unit manager. And as we dug into the workload model, we discovered that there was about $7.4 million uh, that was in the workload model that was not in our allocation. And so we raised this with APD leadership and our allocation was increased by 7.4 million. And as I showed in the previous slide, part of our Medicaid funding is drawn down by using county general funds. So in addition to the $7.4 million increase, we've uh, been working with the department and the division to find creative ways to increase our county general funds by pulling from um, materials and, and supplies or unspent uh, funds uh, in either uh, staffing or uh, contracts. And so the $144.5 million green line on the graph is the allocation that we now have for the biennium. And um, something that I just wanted to note about that we've learned throughout this process is that the state uses that workload model and we've learned that it's not adequate and it doesn't cover funding for all of the individuals that we're required to serve. Um, it also doesn't account for costs of living differences across the state, which impacts us here in Multnomah County as the cost of living is higher than in other rural areas of the state. And we've been advocating for change to the model and we're grateful for our partners at ODHS who have been working with us uh, also on advocating for changes. And there's a possibility that we'll receive funding related to the, a workload model change during this February legislative session. And Irma is gonna talk more about that a little bit later. Next slide, please. So this slide uh, shows the way that we have, um, have divided the funds into uh, our two years. Uh, the um, FY24 budget is $75.4 million for Medicaid, and the allocation divided between two years is about $70.2 million. And so that, uh, that little gray box represents about $5.2 million that we have um, taken in reductions and savings. And uh, next slide, I'd like to walk you through those. The next slide, please. So this, uh, this, this graph shows the $5.2 million and the areas that we have, um, we have reduced or saved funds. So about $3.65 million is savings through vacancies, and that's about a 5.8% vacancy rate for us this year. Uh, we reduced in uh, IT, uh, we had an IT position, additional support we re reduced in that area. Uh, we had uh, buildings and lease savings of about $1.2 million, and then uh, about $100,000 in materials and supplies. And um, now I'll, Irma, I'll pass it over to you to talk about the impact of the reductions. Thank you, Jacob. Um, the good news to share is that benefits and services to our consumers is not affected by any reductions that we had to take for fiscal year 24. Um, the issue is that because such a high vacancy rate, consumers are experiencing longer wait times, uh, not only reach somebody who can assist them with applying for benefits, uh, but also those um, but those also being able to receive those benefits and services. So an example of this is um, ADVSD has had a best practice standard that we have been able to meet over the years of returning a call within one business day, um, and that has increased to, five, to seven days. 
Um, another factor that has caused a delay is uh, lots of promotional opportunities. The last biennium, we actually received a, quite a bit of an increase, and so we added a lot of positions at that time. Um, so there's a lot of new staff um, and um, that need to be trained, and, and training um, for these positions is pretty lengthy. Um, as far as our staff, as Jacob mentioned earlier, the majority of our cost savings are from vacancies. Um, Due to, and due to the global wide staffing shortage, uh, not to mention turnover, um, our staff have been experiencing workload increase. Uh, we have very dedicated staff. They show up to work every day. They volunteer to work overtime. They train new staff, um, and they have to cover vacant caseloads. Um, it's not a lot, it's a lot to require um, from our staff, and it's causing a lot of retention issues as well as burnout. If our case manager's uh, classification was fully staffed, um, a caseload size um, would, would look like approximately 96 cases. Um, and with our current vacancies, um, it's approximately 107, and actually some folks have even more than that. Um, but what are we doing to address this? Um, ADBSD is reviewing processes on how our work is completed. Um, and we're in the process of making a change that will consist of distributing work differently and help with streamlining processes with the goal of reducing caseload size. Um, we are triaging calls and referrals and prioritizing those with the highest needs and the safety risks. We're also authorizing overtime, um, hiring temp workers, uh, most who are recent retirees um, who do not have to have a lot of training, able to jump right in uh, with minimal um, with minimal or no training. Um, this is definitely assists us to serve our consumers in a more timely manner. Next slide, please. All right. Um, we also continue to work closely with uh, the Multnomah County um, Government Relations. I've been having meetings with um, uh, legislatures with uh, Stacy Cowan. Um, been um, also advocating with the or Oregon Associ Association of Area Agency on Aging. Um, of course, we're in um, um, also advocating with the and, and supporting the Oregon Department of Human Services rebalance package. It's in with legislature right now. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we've been meeting with uh, our legislative delegation. We've had uh, about three meetings so far. Um, and um, we are also, um, you know, the legislature, we have a short session that's uh, happening right now that started on February 5th. Um, that's gonna complete, be completed by March 10th. And we are hopeful that we can um, uh, receive some funding if the Oregon Department of Human Services gets an increase in their rebalance ask. Um, next slide. All right, we're hoping next biennium that we will receive information about our funding much sooner and we'll make it a point to budget conservatively. Uh, we've been relying heavily on the history of our funding, um, realize that we need to maybe make some changes there. We'll continue to advocate and work with the state of, of Oregon, um, state of Oregon on changes in the workload model. Um, you know, if they're able to include cases that we're not required to keep open um, in the caseload model, we should be funded more accurately. Um, and lastly, we also need to consider and plan for future county general fund constraints, uh, which impact our Medicaid local match funding. Um, 
and I think that concludes it. Yeah, thank you for your time, and I'm sorry for the for the uh, not having the right slides up. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I will say that um, it's always. I think that the error was just in the the wrong slides that was sent as an attachment when the the updated one so we'll work to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future because it was confusing given to me because i like to look at them on my computer yeah. and it's like this isn't matching I'm so sorry. um so i know it is um for everyone it's it's a little confusing but i appreciate the time that you took to put some additional information um in there about kind of the basis of um the funding for advsd and you know the the type of work that it funds and how it funds that work. I think that's important. So I know like if there are um, if there are any questions by the commissioners about to dig into those details um, that weren't made clear because of the mix up, I'm sure you guys would be willing to meet with folks. Um, and then and then for the board, I just wanted to make sure that um, just to put this presentation in context. So this was another of the areas where what we expected from the state didn't match what was actually allocated by the state, like $1,145, like some of the other public safety grant allocations that we um, have had. And so it was important to bring this to the board so that um, everybody understood that there were um, actually uh, differences in what we had budgeted in FY24 and then what we ended up receiving as we were thinking about the rebalance, unlike some of the other situations where we as a board allocated contingency dollars to help fill this, the, um, the division was, as, as they showed in their presentation, able to absorb some of this by, um, by making some changes with that um, $5.2 million gap um, so in their services. But, um, they, but I think it was a really important for all of us to understand what the impacts of, do, of doing that, of leaving some of those positions vacant, et cetera. So just wanted to set the context of, of this presentation. I really appreciate you taking the time to come and explain that, even though there wasn't a board action that was needed because you were handling it internally. Um, with that, I will go to the board for any questions or comments. Um, Commissioner Myron. Thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, thank you for the presentation. Uh, and uh, it is uh, challenging to potentially be losing significant funding um, to support some of our, needed to support some of our most vulnerable residents. Um, I'm, I'm curious about a number of aspects of this. Uh, and first and foremost, uh, it wasn't clear to me why the state did this. And um, so from the state perspective, what they're saying, the reasoning was for doing this. And um, why some alternative approaches haven't been pursued here at Multnomah County to sort of uh, make up for the uh, $5.2 million. Uh, I guess um, just in the interest of time, I'm gonna, I'll read my questions and then maybe ask for answers at a later date since this is a briefing and there's- yeah, We be can have, we'd be happy to maybe sit with you and, and, and talk with you one-on-one -on -one yeah. if you like. Yeah, and I'll, I'll forward them by email, but I do wanna just raise them here. Um, so the first is why the state is doing this. <laughs> and then the alternative, uh, approaches um, I I'm curious actually why why Medicaid is implicated and used so heavily in this aspect of human services to begin with um, you know I think when many of us think of Medicaid we think of health health care and I think arguably that much of what is provided in terms of the human services here 
is in fact healthcare in the sense of social determinants of health support, housing, mental health support, all of that. Um, and so it seems like there might be a way to approach this from conversation with the Oregon Health Authority and the CCOs. Have those been, have you spoken with any of those organizations agencies to address the Medicaid issue because they administer Medicaid? Yeah, I believe our funding is not through um, OHA. This is um, aging and people with disabilities. And so I'm happy to talk with you a little bit more in depth on that. It's a, it's a separate um, uh, type of track. Um, but I'm happy to just, we can, Irma and I sit with you and talk about the, the funding and the streams. This is a part of, uh, majority of what we do in Medicaid is referred to as the uh, waiver, 1915C. The idea of it is to actually allow individuals to live independently. So it's, uh, you know, uh, we can talk a little bit more on that, even though the, it's a Medicaid funding, it is viewed as a human services, and a lot of it has to do with the uh, mostly the quality of life and a lot of supports. Uh, but I'm happy to, we can talk with you yeah. a little bit more in depth and we're open to any suggestions or any ideas uh, you might have for us. We do, I do work very closely with the Ferrabors and Liesl with ODHS and there is a correlation, so there's always that correlation uh, with OHA and uh, definitely there are areas where uh, Wherever there's a collaboration is needed, but they are our funder. This is where we get our funding is is from a human services uh, department in the state of Oregon. And, and right, I guess yeah. yes. And I that thank you for that clarification. And I think it, it does um, raise where there can be opportunities and uh, collaborating with our health department, for example, um, or even the Joint Office of Homeless Services could be. Uh, so much of the funding conversations with regard to Medicaid, even the waiver, the new waiver for social determinants of health, seems yeah. like it could apply here. And so it seems like we should be yeah, having those definitely. conversations at county leadership and then yeah. translating of that course, yeah. to conversations yeah. with the state. Um, yeah, just so to kind of also uh, just, uh, just kind of flag this, like I said, I worked for 20, six years probably within uh, 28 years in Multnomah County. This is like one of the, in 2001 was the other time when we had like a little bit of budget shortage, but this is very, uh, a bit of an anomaly for us. Mm -hmm. And um, we are able, like you can see, like we're able to leverage a lot of match. If you can, if you look yeah. at some of the slides, you'll find out that for 38 cents we invest as a county, we're able to get a dollar. So really the county is getting really a big, big return and uh, there is a lot of um, collaboration that also is happening uh, behind the scenes. You know, for example, we manage the MDT uh, program, for example, that's like a fund 35 that comes from OHA. And so we provide mental health services through that and do that collaboration. And also I know that we have a mobile outreach team that is funded by uh, SHS and we provide that. So there are all these uh, opportunities and I agree with you on that. Uh, I'm happy to sit with you and just kind of further expand yeah. and flesh that out. Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, 
I mean, that raises other questions for me in terms of why for mental health services, that is it uh, DCHS, why if there's a joint office, like it, all, how all of these things fit together. Absolutely. And I think that's challenging. I think, um, I think we could do a briefing. I mean, maybe like a broader briefing on that I think would be helpful. Um, I just do want to do a time check yeah. because we do have the fentanyl briefing. Yep. And I'm, I'm almost, okay. I just want, that's why I, I didn't want to actually get into the conversation, but just raise the questions and, um, and you know, one is about anticipation of the decrease in ARPA funding from the moment it was allocated, we knew it was gonna go away. And so sort of what the planning has been that has gone into that for knowing it's going away. And um, it seems like a lot of these um, allocations, what's funded by Medicaid seems to intersect with services that fit within the supportive housing services measure funding um, that we have unanticipated revenue of tens to hundreds of millions of dollars, and it seems like a $5 million to, it just seems like they're putting yeah. pieces together. So I look forward to further conversation about that. Yeah. And thank you again. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Commissioner Brim Edwards. Thank you for the presentation. Um, I'm just gonna start with a question about the, um, the slide on the impact on um, the people we serve. And um, it's just a pretty big deviation between best practice and um, this is, the, I printed out a copy, doesn't have a page number, but um, as best practice or call time return one day, current practice seven days. What was it before the reductions were in place? Because that seems like a big deviation, but maybe maybe we were at six days before the reductions happened. Yes, thank you for the slide. Maybe we were at six days beforehand, and so it's just a, an additional day. Um, or we were at best practice, and now we're at seven days, which would be a pretty significant shift. And so looking at the impact on those we serve. So we're huddling because um, uh, and I'll let Irma answer it, but uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is not really, I mean, uh, this shortage, as you can see, like it's not a huge amount of dollars c compared to 114 million, and now we're talking about maybe three to five million dollars. I think there is a, a growth, overall general growth in the system, and so it's, so when you see like the the issues that talk about you know, wait time, longer wait time, or a higher caseload, it's cumulative because the, the growth factor that's happening in multiple, you know, population growth, and also overall kind of general decrease. So I, it's not just this one incident that caused it, but it's been happening over time, and so Absolutely. I'll let Irma the, answer it. The state also went to a different system that has kind of slowed us down as well. And so as we try to really, it's been like three years, the, the one system, that they've also been to no wrong door, so we're having to take folks from self-sufficiency and other areas that we weren't having to do before. So it is like Mohammed said, a cumulative of, of different things, um, but it's just, it could just get even, even worse if we don't have enough staffing. We've been trying to predict what our staffing should be around the slowness of this um, database that is taking our staff longer to get through the process. Um, and also um, just, you know, 
just folks moving around and, and the vacancies that we have. So COVID also, um, during COVID, we, we did notice that we were able to do a, a little bit more because we were doing a lot of stuff online. Some of the changes that the state made as well is like before we could make phone calls and now we have to see people in person. So there's just been a lot of changes that's happened the last two, three years that's kind of made this. Um, do we have a, like a 22, 23 number or what the response time is? And the reason I'm asking the question is like, say for example, the state said tomorrow, here's like, we're gonna fix the gap. Like the expectation could be looking at this as like, oh, we'll be back to one, one day. Um, mm -hmm. But if it's cumulative, right. I mean, I just think we should set expectations. And then what are the other things we would need to do to impact this measure? Because seven days um, is a long time. So do, do we have a 22, 23? I can get that to you. Okay, yeah, I appreciate we do, that. We do keep that data. Yes. And again, just um, to me, that's a critical, seems like a critical measurement of like how at the end of the day, um, but I also don't, wouldn't want to be advocating for, to the state, like you make this change and like we'll, we'll be back um, to this number, to this lower number, which is a very responsive time or back to best practice when in fact, it may take a whole host of other things. Uh, so that was one question. Then, uh, and this is more of just me being relatively new to the commission. I'm wondering um, the slide that has the proportion of um, general fund versus um, Medicaid is for other large counties in Oregon, are they about the same proportion or does Multnomah County put, and this is just at a very high level, do we put more general fund we in do. than a lot of other the big counties? We do, yeah. Well, there's other there's there's three other uh, local uh, area agency on aging that provide these types of Medicaid services, and our local match is is larger than um, yep than okay. the other. And like Washington County compared to like Washington County. So Washington County is is not one. Uh, there is uh, Oregon Cascade uh, Council of Governments, uh, Lane Council of Government. Um, and Northwest Senior North and Disability West. Services. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so most other entities would be the lar larger have rely more on the Medicaid versus their general fund. Uh, in terms of the match percentages, we do pay in more for general fund. I think uh, that the match, that the local match, uh, that, that uh, category on the right of Medicaid, mm -hmm. you know, part of it is that um, we are a very large uh, county, and so we have, um, you know, IT uh, data uh, analysis survey uh, folks, a lot of support folks in the different programs that are embedded, um, oftentimes in some of the smaller um, those, I think overall we're about 40% of the population in our, um, in our local area agency. Um, and in, so in some of those other areas, they've actually reached out to us for support because oftentimes they'll have like one person that's, you know, doing a lot of those, those processes. And so for our portion, um, yeah, we've been able to leverage County General Fund for that local match um, to meet the need that we have for supporting our data systems uh, and other, other kinds of processes. I don't know, Irma, Mohammed, you wanna add anything so to that? I have another just question about the overall budget. So, um, Commissioner Burns, I just wanna, I know you have some questions. I just wanna make sure we, we're not gonna run out of time for the fentanyl briefing. Yep, um, I don't either. Mm -hmm. um, and I was relying on the presentation that we got, otherwise I could ask my questions in advance. Um, my last question is there's, um, and 
it's not in the slide that I originally got, but it's the one that has the slice where it's 56 million for personnel and 16 million for internal services. What, what is that? And you don't tell me now, I mean, unless, unless it's a one or two sentence answer, or I can get it later, but that just seems like a large percentage. Yeah, go on. and then we're happy to meet with you. I'm happy to just maybe bring the team and just kind of answer those. Is that like a facility ones. charge or? That's pretty standard um, charges from facilities and yeah, DCM and all of our in indirect expenses and things like that. Yeah. It's just a, it seems like a large number, so I'd be interested just um, whether that's proportionate. I guess I can follow, probably follow up from a budget standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, if we're just looking at what's being provided versus like here's our overhead cost, um, it's like that area of opportunity to yeah, and that's the least impact. That's probably a question for Christian and the rest of our team because that impacts all departments across the county. Um, it's, a, it's a high number, I mean, just proportionally, so I'd be interested in that. Um, if we're looking at reduction of services, um, that seems like a number that would potentially would be, it's not direct providing direct services, and, and it's large just compared to the other costs. So I'd, I would like a follow-up on if that's Christian or one of you. Yeah. I'd appreciate it. Thank Thanks. You. All right, thank you. Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair. Thank you uh, for the team uh, on your presentation. I was thinking about uh, Muhammad, you've got 26 years, Irma 28. I don't know what the rest of the team has, but I'm thinking there's like a century of experiencing before us. So thank you so much for the presentation. Uh, some of these questions you could probably answer at a later time, but I was really interested in the local match of 38 cents per dollar. Uh, and obviously I know that we're uh, going into budget season. Uh, and so we'll be interested in having larger conversations about how we uh, leverage. So basically what you're saying is that uh, we can buy a dollar of Medicaid for 38 cents. Is that correct? In some instances, you know, yeah. Okay, so I'd be interested as we go into the budget to look at how we can leverage that. Uh, the other question I had is that when uh, the workload model was looked at, I assume that uh, COLA and inflation was included in that. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, and so I guess I don't know. I, you know, and I would like to kind of understand more about like the breakdown of why is their model so much different than ours? Uh, and so you guys can come back to me uh, on that. And I'm really concerned about uh, the the business day response from one to seven. Uh, I like to like understand what does that mean? What kind of customer or consumer is calling that needs services? And we say, sorry, we can't get back to you for a week. Like I'd like to understand what that impact is on that individual. And I don't know if you have an answer. Oh, sorry. Um, so our eligibility team, the folks that um, work with our SNAP and our Medicaid, those folks are answering, because I think when I talked about on the first slide, there's two types of case management. Um, the eligibility folks are pretty much answering on time. Um, at live because we have receptionists at the local offices that can that can manage that. Um, the 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 folks actually, unfortunately, um, that are trying to apply for like our in-home services um, or placement are the ones that are are having to 
um, have that longer hold time to 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 connect with them so it, it is an issue and we're doing our best to try to um, bring that number down with bringing in temps again like our retirees that have been coming back has been such a great resource for us um, because they they don't need training and the database systems that we use I mean it takes about nine months of training for a new case manager to get trained um, and so having those retirees come back has just been um, very helpful for us that's great, Irma. I appreciate your creativity in trying to bolster the workforce. Uh, and also, I'd be curious to, again, you don't have to give me the data now, but I know that retention is an issue. Uh, and I, obviously, there's a cost associated when people leave or retire early because they're burnt out uh, that I'm sure that you'll include when you're uh, arguing or advocating to uh, redo the, the workload model. So, and then just the, the final comment I have is uh, in future presentations, uh, if I could offer a suggestion, if y'all could include page numbers, sometimes it's hard for me to follow, uh, that would just be really helpful. But uh, I thank you all for your work and your commitment uh, to this really um, marginalized population of people. I know you all care deeply about serving them the best that you can with the resources that we have. So thank you. Absolutely, thank you. All right, well thank you all for the presentation and I know um, when I was in Salem last week, we were, I mean, we were talking to legislators about this issue, but also understanding like this is a, a issue that we need to continue to have a conversation about with DHS and really understanding the formula they're using, the way that they're making the decisions and also how you know, the circumstances in Multnomah County with wages and costs of things are actually gonna be factored in going forward. So appreciate all of the work on this and thank you so much for the update. Mm -hmm. Thank um, you so much. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thank and I'll you. schedule time with you, uh, commissioners, uh, just to do Great. updates. So thank Great. you so thank much. Great, thank you. R2, status update and briefing on the 90-day emergency to address fentanyl crisis. All right, this is also a non-voting item. Um, so I'm really pleased to be moving forward with today's briefing on the 90-day fentanyl emergency that we declared together as a board two weeks ago. Um, you know, I was looking forward to this briefing, um, but, I, um, but before we do that, I wanted to spend a few minutes reframing my commitments in this process um, to, to this whole board, but also to our entire community. You know, it, first, it is critical to the success of these efforts that we're working together as a state, as a city, and as a county through a unified command tri-governmental structure that will support our systems-based work. And this process is going to result in short-term successes, important results, but also queue up longer-term impacts and longer-term recommendations that we're gonna be able to work on. So it's the contribution that it's making to the ongoing processes and partnerships that are gonna help us fill these future um, gaps and address the future challenges and opportunities are a really important part of what we're doing right now. Um, you know, through the work that we're doing, we are um, beginning partnerships between um, different components of our governments that are gonna help us reduce barriers and sustain this effort, not just for these 90 days of this um, initial 90-day um, um, emergency response, but for many weeks, months, and years to come. And that's, I think, the most important and critical thing of this work. Um, so for today, it's really important for me, not only um, that we took the step to declare an emergency, but also that we're doing it in the most sustainable and systemic way possible. And that's really by um, supporting the unified command to be able to truly collaborate and work on this crisis from every angle. I know that 
at this very second. They are actually working and communicating right now. Um, I want to thank our unified command, Multnomah County, Dr. Jennifer Vines, Nisha Saxena, and Anthony Jordan, as well as Mike Myers from the city of Portland and Nathan Reynolds from the state of Oregon for who, um, their work and unified command for the leadership that they're providing in this moment. Um, and I know that there are many, many Multnomah County um, staff and staff from our partners who are also treating these next 75 days, 75 days that we have left in this with the great urgency that it deserves. Um, so I've heard, you know, that this collaboration has been nothing short of a revelation to the people who are involved in sitting in these rooms and having these conversations, um, in having discussions that have never happened before, and that's really fantastic. I think the fact that Unified Command is building awareness, connections, and sharing data that we have never brought forward in such a partnership before is really great. And that this is really in service to the ongoing work to identify system barriers and begin to close some of our most troubling and persistent gaps in our systems, many of which are truly barriers to addressing the fentanyl crisis and getting people the help that they need. I also wanted to make sure that this board know that my commitment is that we will be briefed regularly on this issue, both in writing and in these public meetings. This will include, at a minimum, the biweekly briefings that this board has asked for, and I believe that the community deserves. It also means regular in-person briefings with each of you on the board by the policy lead, Abby Stamp, and other members of our county team as needed. And I know Abby is already um, scheduling appointments with you. So that means that the cadence of information we have will be high, and we will be able to ask the questions and provide the leadership needed on an ongoing basis. Um, the briefing, briefings will likely differ from each other depending on what information is most topical and available from Unified Command. Um, but today I'm glad to have the policy leads from the city and the county to update us on some of the key movements that have taken place um, in the last 15 days of our 90-day timeline at a moment when Unified Command is going to be moving towards a more tactical work needed to effectively assess and fill the current gaps in our system. Um, because while we make progress on the ground, we must also be able to track progress. And I'm gratified to see that this tracking has been a key component of conversations and look forward to learning more about the specifics as the emergency response develops. And you know, third, just to reiterate the very um, basic but important fact that these efforts are not gonna stop when the 90 days are over. Today, Multnomah County has treatment beds without people to staff them that ought to have those who are seeking treatment in them. And the work that we do now will be both to impact the immediacy of this crisis and to develop those system-based solutions well past the end of the 90 days. There are people right now who want to get clean and sober who don't have a successful pathway to do that. So the work that we will do now is to develop the systems-based solutions to be building towards solving that problem. People struggling with addiction and the community deserve our support, not just for tomorrow, but this summer, this fall, and into the, um, into the following months and years. Um, in a partnership approach to this crisis, even though we won't be able to address every single issue people are facing, we will be working more closely with people who most need our support. We will be more engaged and we will be in better communication and that part of the work is critical. And fourth, we continue to view this crisis in Multnomah County through a public health lens with a commitment to a one county process. So that means while our health department is working hard to assess the gaps and increase resources in public health, every other department's work at the county is interwoven with this approach and integrated with it. So as we move through this emergency period, we will be asking each of our county departments to collaborate and coordinate in the same way we're developing systems on a more macro level through unified command. 
I'm looking forward to the ways this collaboration will happen and what will it do, how, what it will do to sustain our work in addressing this crisis in more holistic ways. And I want to be very clear that we will be focused on serving our entire county population with these efforts. We may do more targeted work to address the crisis at the street level in Central City, but these efforts will continue to develop best practices around how this work is done in every corner of Multnomah County and in service to our entire population. Which brings us back to why these 90 days are about partnerships, because we cannot develop the resources needed to address a crisis that affects our entire county, indeed our entire state, without our partners. And I know that our partnership and urgency today will pay off in new systems and solutions that will sustain this effort ongoing over time. And I also want to just note that our Multnomah County Health Department is doing work as a part of this process that does reach already into every corner of the county. Lastly, I will ask, especially on behalf of those briefing us today, but for also everyone involved, that we continued forward in the spirit of collaboration, discussion, and true inquiry. Everyone here is doing their part and doing their best. People are working around the clock on these issues. So I um, ask that you respect the value of that effort as much as the information that gets shared today and biweekly from here. And with that, I am happy to turn things over to Abby Stant to begin today's presentation and discussion. Welcome, Abby. Great. Thank you, Madam Chair, and good morning. Good morning, Commissioners. For the record, my name is Abby Stamp. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the Executive Director of the Multnomah County Local Public Safety Coordinating Council, but today I am here as the Multnomah County Policy Lead for this Fentanyl 90-Day Emergency. I also want to thank Stephanie Howard, who is here remotely. Thank you, Stephanie, for joining me today. Uh, my plan is to go through this brief slide presentation and then open the floor first to Stephanie and then to the board to engage in a conversation. Um, and Madam Chair, really, I was listening to your comments and it really reminds me how important that we as a collaborative across the community really think about everything from micro to macro. The, the micro one-on-one -on -one contacts and really how our treatment and community um, engages in that behavioral health continuum and also macro and the systems and institutions that continue to, to, to gift up with some, with some very challenging barriers. And I started my career in Multnomah County as a therapist. I worked with justice-involved families and so have seen on the ground um, a lot of the challenges that folks who are struggling with substance use disorders really engage in every day. And I also want to thank Unified Command. Uh, they are busy at work. Uh, luckily, we were able to postpone our, our meeting this morning. And I actually I want to uh, note that we're going to need to change these briefings to Tuesday because we've got Unified Command policy work every Thursday. And I absolutely want to make sure that I'm here um, and not rushed for time um, as much as possible. Um, and so they are hard working uh, and leaning into this emergency at the Emergency Operations Center. Um, and like the chair, I'm also really grateful to our county health leadership and staff who are dedicated and activated. I'm also happy to share that a fentanyl education campaign is right now currently under development. Next slide, please. Um, so my intent today, here's a short little agenda, is to provide an overview of the work completed to date and the plan for next week so I can come on a regular basis and give you weekly updates. But before I begin, I want to say on the record that I know ongoing and consistent communication with you and the public is critically important. Sometimes there'll be a lot to share and other days there will be less. Nonetheless, this process so far has been intentionally iterative to ensure thoughtful impact, knowing that change and pivot is important, and I will keep you as informed as possible. 
And from what I've observed so far, someone who hasn't engaged in the emergency management deployment uh, yet so far, um, the Unified Command work is very impressive. For being two weeks into this declaration, the process, I believe, is right where it needs to be. Uh, Unified Command, the incident commanders are a team. They are a solid three-legged stool partnership with the city and the county and the state. A lot has been done, and I know it never feels fast enough. I know it never feels fast enough. But since the declaration, this crew has pulled together an amazing amount of solid direction, staff support, and information that will determine what is completed in these 90 days and also beyond. And the Unified Command is taking a both and approach. It's working hard to find both immediate responses that can be completed within the 90 days, in addition to queuing up important work to address the seemingly intractable and systemic and institutional barriers we confront every day as the safety net for our community. Next slide. Just a brief overview of who's doing what. Um, these are some of the key staff. In addition to an incredibly built out and continuing to be built out incident management team, these are the folks who you'll be engaging the most. Um, Unified Command from the State of Oregon, Nathan Reynolds and Sean McGann. Unified Command from Multnomah County, as the chair mentioned, Dr. Jennifer Vines, Nisa Saxena and Anthony Jordan. And from the city is Mike Myers and Katie Wolf, his deputy. Uh, policy leads myself and Stephanie here today in addition to Jana from the state of Oregon, who you heard from when the emergency was declared and you all voted to approve it. And most importantly, or the, another third leg of many three-legged stools, our PIO communications team from the state's um, Elizabeth Shepard, your Multnomah County, Ryan Yamber, who was in the back, um, and the city of Portland, Dan Daffit. Next slide, please. Um, so I'm going to do a very high-level work to date, um, and also note I've been on this project for, I believe today is my seventh day, um, and I'm glad to be able to fill those shoes and help support the work. The Emergency Operations Center was established. Um, they're um, making sure that tech is available, that I can run out of here and make sure we get to our meeting on time um, and contribute remotely, um, and making sure that tech parking and all everything is easy so that the EOC and Unified Command can be seamless and effective. Um, completing and working on filling incident management team roles, all of the different officers and roles that are necessary to, to lean in hard to this emergency. Um, developing and working on mission statement, objectives, and different emphasis. Um, and several collaborative briefings, I did observe them a couple weeks ago, or the end of last week, rather, the days are all coming to one, um, which really identifies the needs, the gaps, and also world big opportunities, um, and really identifying what can we do within 90 days, and what is the work that we need to queue up for nine, day 91 and beyond. Um, and this is a, not an exhaustive, but pretty comprehensive lift, list of these briefings from health officers, corrections health, behavioral health division, public health, law enforcement, Portland Fire and Rescue, um, different overdose coordination, outreach and navigation teams. Um, and as the charity mentioned, really figuring out some reporting cadence and mechanisms. I'll talk a bit about more of that in a moment. Next slide, please. Thanks, Marina. So next week, week three, um, the policy leads, myself, Donna, and Stephanie will be receiving regular situation status reports from Unified Command, and that is the information that I will be able to bring to you both in this public space and individually. Um, we will also hone in on some data needs. That's been a really interesting conversation and some optimism about what are the data matching that can be legally and ethically completed to make sure that the systems continue to work together, measuring outcomes um, and tracking progress, including creating some dashboards 
boards before day 90. And also wanting to identify additional briefings and different subject areas that should be discussed by the Unified Command, such as bringing together local substance use disorder treatment providers who really see on the ground what the obstacles are, the Department of Community Justice, Sheriff's Office, and more. Um, and also finalizing staffing and those objectives. Next slide, please. Um, so, uh, in addition to coming before you every other week, um, or as needed, uh, you do all know, I hope if you haven't heard already, I have requested individual meetings with each commissioner once a week. When we meet, I hope you have my cell phone number. I want to, phone calls, briefings, one-on-ones, whatever it takes, we will do it. Commissioner Myron, I believe I get to meet with you later today. Commissioner Bryn Edwards, I believe we have a meeting tomorrow morning. We can talk more as well. And so that to me is gonna be incredibly important to be present and engage with all of you in addition to this public space in front of the commission as a whole. Um, and because there, this is complex, there are three levels of government involved, as illustrated by this being a unified command, not an incident command. So when information is finalized by all three levels of government, it will be shared with ample support uh, by the JIC, the Joint Information Center. And so please know that much more will be coming, much more, many more details and more information will be coming next week. Uh, the, joint in, the Joint Information Center will accept, jointly craft, and respond to information requests. It will inform the public and the media of the ongoing work the Unified Command is doing. And in addition, our PIO, Ryan Yambra, is going to help develop regular written reports to help keep you informed between briefings. And actually, he's in the back today to track any questions or comments you have. Uh, and I'm here for you. And I will share all that has been approved and allow for dissemination by the Unified Command. And as promised at each encounter, I will provide as much information as I am able to. And please know every day, Unified Command is working together all day, every day at the, uh, at the EOC. Um, and in fact, we had a meeting at 11. We wanted to push it back so that I complete, could complete this briefing with you today, but we are ready to get back to work. And so before I open the floor, I'd like to pass the mic to my colleague, the city of Portland, Stephanie Howard, Mayor Wheeler's Director of Community Safety. Good morning, Stephanie. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Chair, Commissioners. Thank you for having me. Uh, I don't have a lot to add except to say that um, it is the foundational work that has been happening with our unified command team is remarkable. I know I, I would echo Abby's uh, sentiments there that it never feels fast enough, but the foundation that they have put together is, I think, the key to making lasting and sustainable changes that, that are necessary to address this problem from many different angles. Um, I am eager for us to move into our, our now tactical phase uh, of this work. I know that that will be, um, you know, information that I know all of you care deeply about to see what is actually being done. And so we are, we are all looking forward to getting moving with that now that the team is nearly complete. Um, the only other thing I would add is, is just uh, to underscore Abby's point about data and reporting. Um, there is a data team, a little subcommittee uh, in the Unified Command that is working to establish exactly the matrix, uh, the metrics that we can report on to develop a dashboard so that we can maintain as much transparency with the public as possible. Uh, and in, in addition uh, to the, the, the tactical work, uh, I think now we are nearing the position where we can begin to have daily coordination meetings with many different stakeholders to focus on very specific efforts that will allow us to 
uh, to create those metrics and report out uh, frequently. Uh, and I just will also say I'm always happy to uh, help support any of you in, in uh, be feeling comfortable that you know what's going on uh, and making sure that that uh, we are delivering uh, on on the you know the objectives uh, of this emergency and that we are representing our respective governments um, well. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me and uh, I look forward to your questions. Thank you so much. So thank you both Stephanie and Abby for being here. And I know um, there are other places you could be when, um, when there's um, so much work happening all the time right now. So we will go to the board for um, questions and um, we'll start with uh, Commissioner Brim Edwards. Thank you. So I just have some brief comments and then um, some questions. Uh, so it's day 14 of the 90-day fentanyl emergency declaration. Uh, we have seven slides that mainly are about who's involved um, and when we're going to the cadence of when we're going to receive um, information. And I guess I'm going to try and just inject some urgency into the um, emergency. Uh, just given fentanyl is ruining lives and um, killing people in every neighborhood in every part of the county. Um, and it looks like we're not going to have our next public briefing for another two weeks, which will be day 30 of the fentanyl crisis. Um, so my concern is that it, while there's um, discussion, there's a lot of activity happening, um, it doesn't feel like an emergency. And the emergency didn't start on the day that the county took action. Um, I mean, we even had Tuesday, we had a meeting opportunity that was canceled. Um, so in addition to the questions I'm asking today, I'm also going to re formally request um, that the commission receive the baseline data for the county. Um, again, our partners are important, but we all have a fiduciary and a moral responsibility to um, county residents. Um, so I would hope that um, not hope, but I would ask that we get the baseline data that um, Commissioner Myron um, asked for. And specifically, the, f for me, um, if we're going to understand what those short-term successes are, um, the number of overdoses, I, I would like to know the number of overdoses with fentanyl suspected as a sole or contributing factor in 2023 and 2024 with the geographic distribution. Again, this can't, it, it needs to be about the central city and all the other neighborhoods and areas in the county impacted by fentanyl. The number of deaths with fentanyl suspected as a solar contributing factor, the number of individuals receiving uh, Narcan administered by a first responder, again, a geographic um, heat map or where those, that's happening, um, and then um, a heat map of the suspected overdose deaths in the past 12 months. And uh, for me, that's gonna be really important uh, data. Um, I do value um, the partnership, and I um, thank you, um, Stephanie, for being here today. Um, the partnership with the city and state is really important because we know we can't do this on our own. And when we're seeing a 533% increase in overdose deaths since 2018, collaboration can't be the primary outcome. It's it's a enabling um factor that needs, that needs to happen, but it can't be our outcome. Um, so from, from my perspective, having the data that um, Commissioner Myron um, outlined um, at on the meeting where we declared the emergency is going to be absolutely critical because it looks at really places that we're actually going to 
the, the fentanyl emergency, in my mind, should be focused on how are we going to reduce the really serious impacts on county residents. And um, it, so it's not about measuring collaboration, although it's absolutely essential. Because um, with, within this work over the next 90 days, um, transparency, action, measurable improvement is gonna be very important for our community to see. So I'm gonna appreciate the uh, private briefings that we're receiving, but I also think we need to be, if um, the, the seriousness of declaring uh, an emergency um, also requires us to be setting measurable goals publicly and having conversations about whether we're meeting them or, or not. So my, my, I'm just gonna start with the maybe just foundational, some very foundational. So um, just this morning, we don't have any of the county incident commanders um, present. And is that gonna be something that's in future briefings we're gonna have? And I, I appreciate, um, Abby, your presence here. I'm just curious, because um, if we have a county incident commander, are we not gonna be re having an opportunity to interact with that person? So as Abby stated in her presentation, there are actually meetings that are scheduled on Thursday for the team. So if we're moving them for Tuesday, we wanna make sure. Um, Abby and some of our other incident commanders for the county will be providing updates as needed based on what the, on what the updates are about. So the answer is no. The, the incident command. I said Abby and the other folks on the incident command team will, will be, be providing going updates forward. as as, as the, the update, the material of the update or the um, content of the updates allows. So I think it's like whoever is the best person to respond to that, although Abby will be one of the constants, I will say. Okay, and then is there like a, actually a physical location where um, all this activity is taking place on a regular basis, like a, mm -hmm. and, it, and where is that? Yeah, the Emergency Operations Center is at the um, Portland State Office Building in the Lloyd District. Okay, great. Um, and this, so the county resolution that was approved by the commission authorized sort of all necessary action, given it's an emergency, and resources necessary to address this emergency. What actions or resources have happened other that are, that, would, that the community could see that are other than sort of setting up a structure um, in, in the last two weeks? Mm -hmm. um, what, as I said in my opening comments, comments commissioner, is that um, the work is exactly where it should be as it started on February 1st. So bringing together the needed staff to staff a complex response um, has really been that focus. In addition to defining the scope, what is accomplishable in 90 days and what can happen after that. And so the other message I'm gonna need, need to share is when all three levels of government are ready to share specifics that will come out um, publicly from all three government levels at the same time. So maybe this is a question uh, for you, Chair. You referenced in your framing comments um, that there, there would be, although this is designed to be a longer term and sustainable effort that there would be short term successes. Have those been def defined what we'd measure as, as success? So that, yet? that versus doing something and then saying it is success. I'm just concerned of like how we're, how we're going to be report, reporting out so that we've set a target of something we want to do that's very measurable that actually impacts the people on the street versus a versus measuring a process 
Um, so are those process successes or are those actually um, short-term successes in terms that will impact their neg very negative impacts that fentanyl is having on county residents? So the, the, the unified command, their, um, um, what their work entails is setting up those goals, objectives, and, and then the strategies for achieving those. So that is all part of this work that is happening right this second. Um, so those are all things that, as Abby said, will be shared with this board, with the city, with the, with the state, and with the public as those are coming out. I will say that our health department has um, work that they are doing and have been doing around fentanyl and have um, specific things that we are you know, doing here at the county that are um, in addition to, I think, the work that we're focusing on in the central city, which includes the um, the awareness campaigns and really having focus from the public health perspective of, of bending the curve in, um, in um, the rate of overdoses that we're experiencing. Madam Chair, yes. Stephanie wanted to chime oh, in. Oh, please go ahead, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Madam Chair, Commissioner Brim Edwards. I, I want to just acknowledge and, and uh, try to assure you that the metrics that are being developed right now are not about process. That That is a, a, a byproduct that our systems need to develop sustainable processes, but we are talking about very specific, tangible metrics and understanding that the efforts that need to, that this, uh, this effort is intended to create are about action and they are about making the community feel the the effort and, and what's happening. So, you know, I mentioned coordination meetings, daily coordination meetings, um, to give you a sense of what those would look like and how those would inform developing metrics. Those look like having a person from many different um, branches of our government, what law enforcement, mental health, and, and outreach workers having a daily briefing in the morning saying, here's the area of focus today. Here's what we're going to be doing. Here's what our goals are to accomplish in this area. And here's what we are going to be able to report back. And again, the, the data team is, is developing in concert with that, the uh, process that we can report transparently on how exactly we have accomplished those tactical goals. So I, I completely appreciate that process it feels like it's been front and center right now and unfortunately that's just a necessity of getting this EOC and this incident command team together we are moving forward into the action phase where the the tangible results of these daily efforts I think will be much much easier to demonstrate to to all of you and to the community great I, re I really appreciate that assurance um, because I don't think um, we can declare victory with process um, goals and, and improvements, um, but it's really, it's gonna be measured by lives um, and impacts on lives. And again, I'm just, I am gonna submit for the record and ask that we have all the metrics, the baseline data that has been requested be provided to the county. And my last question, I'm gonna go back to a theme that I talked about um, when we declared the emergency, because I, I'm continuing to hear references to the tactical work is gonna happen in a very specific part of town. Um, and I want that to happen, but it seems like what the rest of the county is getting is gonna be promises, like we're gonna be developing best practices. And um, if in 90 days, the only activity has been in one geographic location, um, that's gonna be a huge miss and not what we were promised. 
Um, so a countywide approach can't be one area um, has some very tactical actions and then the rest get the benefit of the best practices. And the best practices are super important, but also I just wanna be very clear, I have an expectation that um, there will be action and measurements. And again, this is why I wanna see the data broken out geographically because East Portland um, deserves to have tactical action support um, and measurable improvements just as the downtown and the central um, east side deserve. Um, so I'm just, that's more of a, a concern and I'll, I'll for sure wanna see it um, and hear about it when we have further briefings and the outcome because um, I, won't, I won't view it as a success if it's only focused on one part of the, um, the city and the county. Great, thank you, Commissioner Stegman. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Abby and Stephanie, for the briefing today. I had a few questions, uh, and I'm not sure if you have the answers yet, so if you don't, that's fine. Uh, but I did uh, want to know how East County electeds and leaderships and the cities within my district would be included in this process. Thank you, Commissioner. I don't, I don't have an answer for you, but as you and I continue to meet, let's, let's talk about that. Very good. And I guess uh, I too had some questions. And again, uh, I know that you know you all are flying the airplane and trying to build it. Uh, is it? It would be helpful to have some framework around what a. I think Abby, you talked about this being a unified command and not an incident command. And I'm not sure exactly what that means. Like, how is this? I mean, we're familiar when we have uh, inclement weather or an emergency weather. Uh, command center, but so that might be helpful too in future conversations or framing uh, just to kind of understand how this is different from like a weather related emergency. I can answer that very quickly, Commissioner. Um, it's it's the the sum is greater. Uh, some you know. Three-legged stool is a metaphor I've been going with. Um, we have all three legs or no legs. So um, when and if our incident commanders would come and present to the commission, it would need to be all unified command from the city and the state and uh, the county because they are one voice, they are unified. This is not different levels of government operating in silos but in the same room. They are a unified voice working together in concert. Um, same with policy folks, which is why my colleague is Stephanie is here, and with communication strategies as well okay that's that's really helpful um, also uh, you mentioned the federal campaign can you talk a little bit more about that the health department public health campaign yes um, I would need to have my health department colleagues that's okay. uh, speak to that I'm sure I'm sure you'll, you'll be reporting out <laughs> on it um, and um, you know, while I understand, you know, the frustration that, that many of us share in, in our community about really wanting uh, to treat this as the true emergency that it is, I do think that collaboration is absolutely foundational to outcomes. I don't know that we're gonna have the outcomes that we want unless we have the collaboration between the city, between the state and between our county. So I really look forward to that unified command really rising to this occasion. Uh, this is the moment in time that we have been asking, clamoring, demanding for, and it's here. And so uh, I am hopeful 
uh, that this uh, unified command will be able to deliver on what this board and our entire county is asking for. So I, and I also wanted to welcome Nisha and I saw Anthony uh, Jordan uh, to Dr. Uh, Vine's team. And I mean, I think we really have, uh, you know, the A team from the county and Abby, thank you for stepping up. I know like all of a sudden, uh, this has probably been a bit of a whirlwind for you. You said you, this is uh, day seven. Uh, so uh, congratulations on a week. And also I did wanna let folks know the reason I'm not there is that I attended the NACO conference in Washington, DC. And we had originally, or, or the reason that we didn't have a board briefing on Tuesday is because we weren't gonna have quorum for commissioners who, who are here in DC. I ended up staying on because I'm actually visiting uh, a sobering center here in Washington, DC. So I just wanted to let folks know that sometimes we cancel briefings, uh, the chair does, because we don't have quorum and that was the case on Tuesday. So thank you so much. I look forward to the continued briefings. Thank you, Commissioner Stegman. Commissioner Myron. Sorry, um, I'm trying to gather some thoughts. I'm holding multiple truths right now, and so I'm going to express them. The two main truths are that I am very grateful to the individuals who have stepped up, who have presented, and who are doing the work and doing their best right now. So I want to express my gratitude and let them know I appreciate them. I'm also trying hard to control my outrage because this presentation contained nothing of substance two weeks after an emergency declaration. So I've said before, the time of the first announcement by the governor, chair, and mayor that there'd be in the future a fentanyl emergency declaration, it was clear there was no pre-planning despite governments generally doing pre-planning before declaring emergencies. This was over two months ago. In the 51 days between the declared intention to declare an emergency and the actual declaration of an emergency, it also does not appear that there was coordinated pre-planning because otherwise we would have a full incident command team. We wouldn't be figuring out what our plan is going to be. We wouldn't be figuring out or developing an education uh, thing for schools. We would be rolling this out. So there was not pre-planning. During the board meeting about the actual declaration, I repeatedly asked what the defined goals were for the 90-day declaration, where 90 days even came from. Why is it 90 days? I don't know. I received no answer at that meeting. Now, two weeks into the 90-day declaration, I literally don't know anything of substance more. Commissioner Brim Edwards mentioned the chair's statement that the 90-day declaration was designed to result in short-term successes, queue up responses to the longer-term challenges. But no one has made any mention of what those short-term successes might be what's supposed to be achieved in 90 days for this crisis or why it's 90 days. Uh, the chair mentioned that the collaboration she's seen among agencies that I think 
most people would have assumed have been working together for years was a revelation to her. I find it horrifying to contemplate that they haven't been working together for years. The same is true with a so-called one county process. Of course we're one county and should be collaborating with ourselves. Like that should be a baseline given that needn't be bragged about. The fact that this hasn't been happening, if it hasn't been, should be really concerning to people. If it's a one anything approach, it should be a one community approach. I absolutely agree with that collaboration. I'm just shocked and saddened it hasn't happened before. So there's still, sounds like, not even a full incident command, command team. You provided, I appreciate a list of the roles, what there should be, but I still have no idea what anyone's actual job within the structure is and what each contributes. It seems like most of the time spent of the incident command team has been getting briefings from departments that, as I said, I think most people would have assumed have been working together as a one county for the whole time we've been a county. Um, and briefings are just by their definition passive. What I think everyone's been waiting for on this board and from the public, especially the people dying from fentanyl overdoses, which I've heard Oregon has the highest rate in the country, by the way, is action. What are the actual things being done to stop people from dying, number one, and achieve other important defined outcomes? What are the deliverables? I offered a list at our, where we first declared this emergency of suggestions, um, but rather than bring those forward as a resolution or anything formal, I wanted to give grace because I was told the incident command team was going to take care of it. So I will be working on those to bring forward more formally, at least offer to the incident command team. Each week we're told we'll get the real information next week. We get updates that they're going to be updates about updates. So questions I'm gonna raise, they don't need to be addressed here because obviously, uh, as so often happens, we don't have time to discuss these important, crucial issues in full. I'll raise the questions and hope for answers. I'll go in the order of the presentation. So you say you've developed a mission statement, incident objectives and command emphasis. These weren't actually mentioned in the presentation, so I would like to specifically see them. You mentioned the collaborative briefings that were completed to quickly identify gaps, needs, and opportunities. Again, briefings from divisions in our own organization and uh, our own organizations, one would have assumed we should know something about at baseline, but there were briefings that I'm glad were collaborative. But what are these quickly identified gaps, needs, and opportunities that you describe, that you mentioned but did not identify? You mentioned that you established reporting parameters and cadence. Not still, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it, what are the reporting parameters? Um, you said you would hone data needs which will lead to policy development and dashboards. I literally, I don't understand that sentence. What does it mean? 
how are you honing data and what will that lead to? You say it will lead to policy development and dashboards. I think that's the goal that we assumed we would have at the baseline for this. How and when can we expect to see the things that should be key urgent deliverables? There will be individual briefings to share information and answer questions. I feel that's an inefficient, I mean, I love you, Abby, and I would be happy to talk to you all the time. That being said, I think it's an inefficient of use of your time and our time as a board. And rather than Abby doing four separate briefings of the same information with no opportunity to learn from each other, ask questions, have dialogue, and have the public understand what's going on, why not every week at a board meeting, Abby, you do that presentation that would have been to each of us and we can talk about it. And at a board meeting, we have whatever the other presentation from whoever else it might be. I, again, briefings are passive by definition, so I would hope it would be a give and take. And finally, Charles, if he's still here, or Bridge Crane, oh, there you are, said it. We inter need to interdict the trafficking of killer drugs. What is the plan and what's being done on the supply side of fentanyl? It is not mentioned anywhere ever. What agencies or resources are stepping up to ensure these drugs are not coming into our communities in the first place? I've seen Multnomah County Sheriff's Dangerous Drug Unit do fantastic work. However, dealers and traffickers, even with significant quantities, being let out of jail. The supply side math is pretty stunning when you break it down. If a gram of fentanyl is 40 bucks on the street and a fatal dose, according to the DA, is two milligrams, then one gram is at least 500 fatal doses. You divide, sorry about the math here, but if you divide $40 by 500 units, you get eight cents per unit. It's rough math, but the implications are beyond alarming. I honestly don't need to hear anything more about your processes. I honestly think that that is not time we need to spend. Trust you in your processes. I hope to be able to. But I care about results, and I think the public cares about results, and there are none that we've seen, there are none that we've heard about, and we certainly haven't seen anything change since the declaration of emergency. My suggestions, and then I'm finished, are number one, fill your incident command team and include subject matter experts. Number two, meet daily for substantive work, not just kind of a check-in. Number three, focus on action, not briefings. Number four, get the dashboard up and running stat. Number five, at least mention the trafficking of drugs in somewhere in this conversation. Number six, identify and share deliverables and outcomes. Commissioner Brim Edwards mentioned my proposed amendment where I listed a number of these. And if I don't hear any by, you know, in whatever way by the end of next week, I will propose them as a board resolution as soon as possible to get them on an agenda. I think that's, I think that's it. And um, I appreciate the time. Mm -hmm. I have some answers, if you would like. Do we have time for them? Um, we have I, time. 
Okay, we've got a meeting. Stephanie and I have a meeting at noon, but we'll do we'll do our best. Um, so, Commissioner Myron, I hear you. I hear you so hard, and I know that um, for me, it's going to be important to maintain not only a presence here in the boardroom to speak with you as the board and with the public, but to also have one-on-ones to see if there's ahas you've had during the week. Please make sure you're, you're preparing for this. If you don't want to meet with me, you can text me and say no, thank you. I'm good, um, but I want to make sure that I'm available to the commission. That is my job. Okay, um, I will. I can get more specifics. We can. We have an org chart. It can be more um, detailed about roles, responsibilities, and the whole incident management team. We can do that. Um, we have talked about trafficking because it's not just about demand; it's also about supply. So we've had conversations about what are the existing collaborations between F FBI, drug enforcement agencies, and local law enforcement. I am. I am on the, on the edge of being over my skis here today um, because there is work that's happening at the Unified Command, which remember, also includes the city and the state, and that group needs to agree when all of this information is to be um, communicated and released on a public level. And so I am uh, beholden to that agreement as well. Um, and so the briefings have not been briefings. Imagine it's the state of Oregon and the city of Portland hearing from the county, from public health, from folks like Janie Gullickson and the other folks who work in the community about what they do and what the gaps are and how do we connect between what the city offers, what the county offers, and what the state's role is. So it's really been hearing from county, not intra-county, um, but intergovernmental. Um, I've been to a lot of briefings. I know it's very passive. It has been much more um, sharing information to create possible quick solutions, possible innovations that could result in solutions. Um, the situation status reports are going to be start to be uh, released next week, and I will be able to come to you with that information, which should be much more tangible, much more informational, and really have the, some of the detail you're looking for. And when I talk about honing data, we want to put all of the data and all of the things that are available into one dashboard because we want dashboards to be able to show us all of the information we need to be good stewards of public dollar and create good policy. There are also uh, obstacles with legal and ethical ways that we share um, information, particularly when it comes to um, uh, private health information or HIPAA protected or CGIS, uh, criminal justice information protected data. So they're honing in on what those dashboards should be, what data is readily available, and I hear some energy and excitement about the possibilities. So when the Unify Command is in agreement and there is a plan for dissemination, I will be your messenger. And I think that's probably sufficient for today. You're welcome. Thank you. Stephanie, I didn't know if you had anything you wanted to add or if you're, okay. No, thank you. All right, well, I appreciate this. I will say, um, I appreciate this. This is just the first of many briefings that we are going to have. Abby volunteered to make sure that you had individual one-on-one -on -one time because she knows, because a priority for her is the communication. It is also a priority for me. I will say the, the description that there was no pre-planning to this is completely false. There were, there were hours and hours of meetings that happened between city, state, and county folks at the staff level, at the elected level, within each of these, those levels of governments to get to a 90-day fentanyl declaration. So I wanna be very clear. The nature of a unified command structure is that unified command, as part of their process, sets the goals, um, objectives, 
and, um, and strategies um, for the work that is happening. That is the process that we are in now. It sounds like we are very much at the kind of the, the end of that process where we're going to be um, being able to hear and share more publicly what those are in alignment with the city and with the state, um, which is a very important part of the process. Um, also, you know, Commissioner Moran, I don't disagree with you that government should be working together, that we should be functioning as one county. That has been a focus of mine. It has been a message I've been delivering to every single department here in this county since I've become chair. But the reality was we weren't always functioning like that. We are moving to a function like that. And this 90-day declaration, the work um, in looking at how we can best use our supportive housing service measure dollars and the um, work around the homelessness response system. Um, as we are thinking about the larger issues around gun violence, like there are many issues where we are pushing and continuing to improve the way that we truly are functioning as one county, as we should and as, um, as I expect and the public expects that we should be. So that is, that is where realities and silos, uh, realities of silos are sometimes true and we're working and committed to um, across the board, breaking those down. This, this work itself, this 90-day fentanyl declaration itself is a huge example of the commitment between the governor, the mayor and I to move forward in that manner here with this intense work that we're gonna be doing and the longer term work that it's gonna enable by doing this. So, um, and then I, I think the final thing I will say is Resolutions should not be used as threats. Last week, I was incredibly supportive of the idea of moving forward some of the things that you contained in your amendment as a separate resolution. It just didn't, it wasn't, you know, necessarily appropriate for an emergency declaration. Um, but but I, I think resolutions are something that we as a board should all have input in. We should all have, um, uh, you know, collaboration around, and they should be put forward so that we as a board have an opportunity to come together to put forward those things. So last week I talked about that. I mean, I said, like, um, you know, this is, this is something that I'm happy to work on as a separate thing, and, I'm, and I still have that commitment. So I just wanna be clear, like, the way, having, having you know, using that as kind of almost like a, I'm bringing forward a resolution if I don't get, you know, this thing, that is not the spirit I want this board to um, operate in, and I and I didn't ever, you know, I did commit to working with you, and so I just want us to be very clear about how we can work together um, forward to make sure that some of the priorities and some of the things that this board wants to see in our work going forward actually come to reality. So I appreciate your time. We are five minutes over. I apologize. I know folks have to get going. I have a meeting that I have to get to. Um, I appreciate, as I said, there's going to be more information forthcoming, and this board and the public will be updated regularly from the county side. With that, we are adjourned. Thank you.